0: As we continue our call to worship this morning, I'll be reading with you from John chapter 14. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. The Gospel reading this morning is selections from John 13 and 14. They've been rewoven, reorganized a little bit, so following along is going to be challenging. So we encourage you to listen as we read this morning.
1: A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. If you love me, keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Anyone who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave.
2: Where I am going, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me.
1: My Father's
2: house has plenty of room. If that were not so, I would have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you,
0: You will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you will be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe." a lot of text, right? But
3: you have nowhere to go. And that's what every pastor wants to delude himself into believing is that he's got a captive audience. Problem is the doors are unlocked and uh, you can leave at any time. So it's not exactly true, is it? In preparing for today... I was looking through John 13, 14 because I've been talking to you about the importance of John thirteen fourteen fifteen sixteen 15, 16, and 17. Jesus is in the upper room. This, this whole dialogue between you and I on this started at communion service several weeks back. We read portions of John 13 because it's in those portions of scripture that we find the foot washing service taking place. Them physically getting ready for the table and at the table. It's this moment on which an entire uh, liturgy has been built in the Christian church. It's uh, this moment that is uh, considered one of the greatest of the, the sacraments in the Christian church. We partaking in this moment through the experience of communion. And so John 13 is an interesting chapter, and Adventists, I think, have a unique place in reading John 13 because uh, we're one of maybe 27, 24 denominations out of over 300 in America that practice foot washing. And I've talked to you about the importance of all of that before. But as I've been reading through these sections of scripture, I've come to realize that I'm hearing things, some things over and over again. They're related, they're connected, similar phrases, similar ideas. And I wondered what it would look like if I spent a little time, at least for today's reading, and separated that all out into thematic content. What would it look like if Jesus talked just about the place where he was going? What, if it, what would it look like if Jesus just took a, talked about the one being sent, the spirit, the comforter, the advocate? What would it look like if Jesus were to speak of what love meant in the way that he was defining it in this section? What would it mean if we were to break those apart a little bit and look at them thematically in terms of content rather than contextually one text after another? And so that's what I've done. And that's the readings that you've heard today. They're all segments from John 13, 14, with one exception. I've left out one little tiny segment. I've left out the, qu- the segment where Peter says, Lord... Why can't we go where you're going? Immediately after he says this, he says, why would you keep me from that, basically? I would lay my life down for you. That's his, his, his word. And this is that very painful moment at the table where Jesus looks at Peter and says, really? You do not know this, but before morning comes, before the cock Rose thrice you will have denied me thrice well that seems at least in our, our dialogue in john to have shut peter up for the moment we come back to peter in the actual story of him denying christ and then later in john 21 which is a restoration and we won't be getting to that in this little series In John 21, we find Jesus post-resurrection now coming to Peter and giving him three times the question, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? And you can just see in your mind's eye Peter beginning to break down. What a roller coaster. There's the night of this Passover that becomes so much more than that by the next day. At Passover meal, Christ is serving them and teaching them And a very short time later, he's dead and laid in the tomb. And a very short time later, resurrected. And a very short time later, appearing to the disciples, including Peter. You realize that when Jesus encounters Mary, he says, Run, tell the disciples and Peter, and Peter, that I'm alive what grace what wonderful grace you know he i think if i were jesus and this is a big clue that i'm not if i were jesus i'd be coming out going wow i made it it worked i did it you know I, i i don't know what i'd be doing but i wouldn't be thinking of peter And if I did, it would be Peter. No offense, Peter. (laughs) Jesus is risen. He sees one of his followers and he says, you know, go tell the rest of the disciples and Peter. I know he's got to be feeling bad. I know he thought he would put up a fight and give his life for me. I know he... He took out his sword and cut off Malchus' ear. That wasn't what I had in mind. Just, just go tell him. Go tell the disciples and Peter. And then this confrontation, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? By the third time, they've both got to be crying. It's got to be a total breakdown for Peter. He's going to have to be a different person from this point on. He can't be the brash one commanding Jesus to wash his head and his hands also. He can't be the brash one trying to cut off Malchus's ear. He can't be the brash one trying to lay low, hiding around a fire, telling a servant girl in four letter words that he doesn't know Jesus. He can't be the one with the bravado. He's got to be humbler, he's got to be really ready to follow and to give himself. And he's got a very short time to get there. And Jesus works with him. Jesus teaches him in these last moments of his time. If you know the story of Peter, he goes on to be the head of the Jerusalem church along with James. Very important figure. It is the visions presented to Peter that open up the church to the Gentile work, which Paul is already clued into and on track for. And finally, it will be Peter who will be martyred in such a way that he is also to be crucified as his Lord was crucified. Only by tradition, Peter refuses to hang on the cross as Jesus hung. He insists that he be crucified upside down. Peter, do you love me? The same question could be asked of you and me, and that is the little section of text I left out of John 13, 14 today. We have several themes that we're exploring in these passages. In the call to worship, you heard the story of the Spirit that's to be sent. Now, we have in Genesis God's Spirit hovering over the waters of the deep, this generative sort of presence. We have in John chapter 1, Jesus, by whom all things are made. And we have God as the Father, as the Creator, too, in Genesis. God said, let us make or God said and it was. So we have this idea of our our trinity, three persons in creation already from these various passages. But here Jesus is exploring the relationship that he has with the Father to the disciples in a way that he's never done so candidly before, acknowledging some really important, I think, limitations on his part as he stands before them in the flesh. And as he talks about the Father and he talks about going back to the Father and the Spirit that's to be sent, we get the idea that there's something special that God has in mind here. I personally think God's Spirit has always been with humankind. But he's being sent in a special way. Because the things that the disciples of Jesus are to do, and that should include you and I, are actually to mimic what Jesus was doing. You remember, Jesus finds 12, but there weren't 12 disciples. How many of you know there weren't just 12 disciples? Good, a few of you do. Jesus sends the 12, and then he sends out the 70. They were also disciples. And by the way, when they come back, they're really excited. Lord, this was an amazing experience, I gotta tell you. While I was out there, as long as I used your name, people were healed. Even the demons obeyed me. And Jesus says, You know, don't celebrate that so much. Celebrate that your name is written in the book of life, that your names are written in heaven. What an interesting retort to success in ministry. You know? When we have a success in ministry, what we need to be celebrating is not the success in ministry, but that somehow, through grace, our names are written in heaven. So Jesus sends out the 70, and they too go do in his name. And there were families of these people. There's no way that the 12 and Jesus just traveled as 13 guys. The disciples, many of them, were married. We know Peter had a mother-in-law. We know she lived in Capernaum. We know he had a house there. In fact, we think archaeologically we found the house. I've been there several times. These guys were not only married, but they would have had families. And they wouldn't have been free to be gone for months and months at a time, out wandering the hills listening to an itinerant preacher. They took their families with them. They found a way to make things happen as they went. You know, just to get up to uh, northern Israel on foot from the Sea of Galilee is about a two-week journey by foot. So things didn't happen quickly back there. So in our opening segment on the Holy Spirit, we just see a wonderful um, promise being given in this moment. Jesus is really saying to the disciples, look, I'm leaving you. I'm going to a place you cannot come. And we'll get to that in a minute. But the place that I'm going where you cannot come doesn't matter for now because I'm going to send you an advocate to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And the TNIV, spirit is capitalized. The spirit of truth is going to teach you the spirit of the world, is, the spirit of truth is going to teach you and enable you and empower you. We know what happened at Pentecost. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be where? In you. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Before long, the world won't see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And the Spirit is part of all of that. I'm not going to pretend that I fully understand all of this. I think it's a foolish thing to pretend that any of us fully understand this. But Jesus speaks in these connected terms, and it's that notion that I want to connect you with this morning on this pericope. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. We're going to be sending an advocate, another comforter, someone who will be in you. You will know him as you know me. There's this deep sense in these passages in John, and it comes out most profoundly in John 17 in his prayer, of connectedness. You see, what Jesus came to do was restore relationship. Are you into that? Do you, do you understand what I'm saying there? We had broken relationship through sin and mistrust. We had chosen a different way. And out of our rebellion, God said, I still want you. You're mine. And I'm going to do what it takes. The plan of salvation comes into being, or maybe always was, but gets enacted Jesus comes in the flesh to be one of us, to walk as we walk, to suffer what we suffer, to feel our infirmities and weakness, and yet to honor the Father in all things, to be without sin. He comes that we might see what the Father is really like, that the distortions that have entered the picture are washed away, and oh, how sad that so many distortions have re-entered the picture. But he wants us to see God so clearly. God wants to reveal himself once again. And there's this victory that's alluded to in these passages. I'll get to it in a minute. But it says, the prince of this world is coming soon. But he has no influence on me, no effect on me. You see, Christ is about to become prince of the world once again. It's a simple sort of uh, substitutionary thing. Adam and Eve were created. They were given princedom of this world. This was their domain. Rule over it, God said to them in creation. But as they abdicated that, they lost that representative power. And they lost a relationship with the natural world as well, as we understand it. It isn't God's world any longer from that point. It is now the serpent's world. It is the devil's world. And Jesus says, I've lived my life to rest it back. He's coming, but he doesn't have any effect on me. And when it's over, this world will be mine. I will have reconciled you and Toto to the Father. The entire human race reconciled in the act of a man God. And so this is a very uh, pertinent and important little piece. This connects Christ to the world in a way that we can't possibly fully appreciate. And as we see the relationship of us to the Father and being in the Father and with the Father through the Son and connected through the Spirit, we sense the connection that exists in Trinity as well. At the end it says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. And I don't give as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. My takeaway from this is that God gives us something that lasts, and when he sends his spirit, it's meant to be a part of us forever. And my sense is that this movement away from fear is what I've described to you in the past as this portion of salvation. We move, when God calls us, from the house of fear to the house of love. We move from the house of judgment to the house of grace. We live in a different place because if, in fact, Acts 17 is right, in him we live and move, I have our being, we're no longer grounded in in the fear of the world. We're no longer grounded in the alienation of the world. We're no longer grounded in this lost place. Our names have been written in the book of life. We're living in a different place. Our reality has shifted. We've been freed. We're no longer slaves. We're reconciled. We're connected to God in Christ and by the Spirit. And that place is a place of no fear. So, in the course of life, politics, uh, finances, and so forth, God still is issuing this invitation to us as a church today leave fear, move into love. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. The other passage that leads up to that is the one that Jean read and has the most famous uh, lines in it. My children, I'll be with you only a little while longer, Jesus says. You look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you can't come. But he asks, after all the questions have been asked, after Peter asks, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus repeats himself, and Lord, why can't I follow you now? He offers this bit of hope you've heard it in funerals some of you have marked it as your favorite text and it goes with this piece don't let your hearts be troubled put your trust in god and also in me now this is the antithesis of what happened in eden is it not are you do you have to think about it or are you just feeling shy this morning it's okay It's the antithesis of Eden. The issue in Eden wasn't obedience. The issue in Eden was trust. Okay, yes, if you stop me by the door and argued that Adam and Eve disobeyed the command of God not to touch the fruit, I'll grant you that. So we can skip that after church today. But the underlying issue isn't whether they were going to be rote Servants in obedience or non obedience, compliance or non compliance, the underlying issue was who did they trust? Who did they listen to? Who did they want? Whose advice did they want to take? Now, God may have been an inexperienced parent at this point. Is that shocking? I think it's fair to say. Because we as human parents certainly know that the minute we put two things out in the yard and tell our kids not to touch one, the first thing they're going to do is run to that one thing. We told them, what? Not to touch, right? Yes? Or is my son unique in the universe? I don't think so. I've watched your kids for eight years too. That is the first thing. So, you know, I I think it's fair to say maybe God was a new parent here. Maybe he, you know didn't really uh, appreciate what was immediately going to happen when he said, don't go there. But whatever that happened, whatever the dynamic is there, God says, look, trust me, you don't want to go there because if you do, if you eat of that tree, you're going to die. This is where life is. This is where I've given you my blessing. And this is your home. This is for you. Take care of it. And who did they listen to and who did they trust? It was that really crafty serpent. I mean, the snake talked, after all, and looked pretty decent, too. And if tradition is right, it may have flown and whatever else. Who knows? It was a fancy snake. It wasn't like today's snakes. And fruit looked good. Who doesn't like a nice piece of fruit? Trust in God. Trust also in me. This is a statement going back. It's the antithesis of Eden. And it is the thesis of what's to come. You see, heaven is the place where Eden exists again. It's restored. And heaven as a restored Eden is also the place where we do what with God? Have a what kind of relationship? A relationship of trust. Trust. And this is connected in this passage, trusts also in me. My father's house has plenty of room. King James says mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you that I would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I bother to go and prepare a place, will I not come back and take you to be with me? That's what Jesus is saying. And embedded in this is the promise of what's to come. We have the reference to what has been, the broken trust. And now the reference to what's coming. And in this, then, this final line is really interesting. You know the way to the place where I'm going. You know. Jesus is now speaking spiritually. And the disciples are still living in a literal world. Doesn't that characterize us as disciples today? I'm not interested, Lord, in where you want to take me spiritually. What am I supposed to do to pay the mortgage this month? I'm not really interested, Lord, in where you want to take me spiritually. How am I going to make the next tuition payment? I'm not really interested, Lord, in what I'm supposed to do spiritually, but can't you get my boss off my back? We're grounded in our daily lives and world, and Jesus says, listen carefully. You know the place. And Thomas, who is so typical of so many of us, says, Quite on target. No, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we possibly know the way? And then that famous passage. Jesus answered Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If you really knew me, if you really know me, you will know that my Father is well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. Jesus, the one who was with God in the beginning. Jesus, by whom all things were made. Jesus, co-eternal with the Father. Here he says this very interesting thing. If you're going to get to the Father, you're going to get there through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now this I am statement harkens back to chapter 13 where we read before I am that I am. Do you remember that from a couple weeks ago? I referenced that in relationship to Moses talking to God in the burning bush, standing on holy ground saying... Who am I to say has sent me to call for your people's release? And the burning bush says, God in that bush says, You want to know my name? I am that I am. You can't comprehend my name. There is no name I can give you that would have enough meaning for you. The name I will give you is that I am the ground of all being, I am the basis of all existing. I'm not just the basis of a salvation that will come for the Jews from Egypt or for the world in Christ. I'm the basis of everything. I'm the basis of being. That's why we're called human beings. And where do we live? We mostly live as human doings. As human havings. We define ourselves by what we can collect and amass, and what we have, and we define ourselves by what we can do. I hate to use my family as a negative illustration, but my father retired a couple of years ago and he doesn't know what to do. For so many years, he was defined by what his career was. For so many years, he was defined by what he could do for others. For so many years, he was defined by how he stood in relationship to a community based on what he could do for others as a physician. And now that he's stepped away from that, he's really, in my view, struggling. He's been a human doing, and it's been a generous piece. It's been a giving piece. It's been a healing piece for so many. I don't want to make light of that at all, and And I look forward down the road a little bit to put myself where he is, and I'm not sure what I'm going to end up doing either or how I'm going to manage. It's amazing how our jobs become so much a part of who we are, isn't it? Especially for you men. I think men have an even deeper problem with this than women do. We define ourselves by our work. But Jesus said that he was the ground of being, and that's what we are. Our groundedness is in God. We're children of the King. That's our core identity. Everything goes from there. So Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and then that'll be enough for us. I don't think Jesus could have been served a better setup if he'd wanted to. Now it's time to slam the volleyball over the net. Now's the time to ace the opponent's. It's a ridiculous question, given the context, and yet one we ourselves very much ask day to day. You know, when it comes to faith, we want to say, if only I could see, only a miracle could happen. The problem is that we're just as blind to the miracles in our daily existence as they were back then to the miracles before them. We're, we're, we have just as much difficulty seeing with clarity the spiritual truth of our lives as Philip and the others had. Jesus, ever patient, says, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you so long? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? Listen to the words I speak. They're not my own or from my own authority, but it's the Father living out life within me, doing his work. Believe me when I tell you I'm in the Father and he is in me, or at least believe based on the works that I do themselves, the miracles I've shown. No ordinary man can do these. Truly, I tell you, all who have faith in me, though, will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going back to my Father. And I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son and you may ask me for anything. In my name, and I'll do it. And so, once again, we're so clearly focused, aren't we? Lord, let these be the winning lotto numbers. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Do you remember that commercial? We've got our vision set firmly on terra firma. Our visions of what can happen are limited to ourselves or perhaps a few people we know and love most of the time. Jesus said, love your enemies. Don't you know that even the pagans love their friends and their families? What distinguishes you? The vision is a spiritual one. When Jesus says, ask anything in my name, he's not talking about you producing something great for yourself. He's talking about healing the world through you. He's talking about relaying an image of the Father that was relayed through the Son to the apostles to the world. Our job, what he wants to empower us to do, is to give the world a picture of the Father that's compelling, And what is the Christian world doing with that right now? Not you specifically per se, but what is the Christian world doing with that? I just went to a conference in which the head of Barna Group, who does stuff like Gallup, basically, said the impression of Christians out there is not really great. We're viewed as homophobic and or homosexual haters. We're viewed as narrow-minded. We're viewed as judgmental, hypocritical. Now, some of these things are not fair to your walk and to mine. Some of these things are not fair to your viewpoint or mine. Some of these things aren't accurate about the Christian church as a whole, but they're impressions that the world has. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if we're in Christ and Christ is in the Father, then the Father is also in us. And our job continues to be an extension of what his is. Our job as Christians is to heal to love, to free, to release, to grant grace to, to forgive. Our job is to show the Father. And Jesus lays it out for the disciples so beautifully there. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you'd be ba- glad I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Don't let that sentence throw you. Jesus is at the end of his ministry, incarnate, fully human, fully God, but not in the same state as he was before the incarnation. He'll receive glorification. And he'll return to the Father to sit at his right hand. He'll once again reign. But at the moment that he speaks, all things belong to the Father. And Jesus' job is to bring everything in heaven and earth, which the Father has given him all authority for, to bring it back under the Father's feet. It's part of this unity that we can't quite comprehend. I've told you that now before it happens, so that when it does, you'll believe. There is that wonderful thing again. And I know with four sermons, I'm going just a titch long. Bear with me. I'm going to bl- I'm, today, I'm going to just blame Dave Branham. Is that all right, Dave? No, I'm just teasing. Give me another two minutes. The other section on this that's in the, the, the John 13 and 14 has to do with love. And that has to do with our mission as well, doesn't it? In fact, it encapsulates it. In its entirety. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That is to be the Christian church. Unequivocally. How do we do this? How do we do this? It starts with community. It starts with knowing one another. It starts with family. Family. Jesus adds, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's the one we like. Keep my commands, is how it's phrased. Whoever has my commands and keep them is the one who loves me. Oh, I'm good. It is Saturday. This is Sabbath. I am in church. I am keeping all of the Ten Commandments. I haven't murdered anybody this week. (laughs) I haven't stolen from anybody this week. I haven't cheated on my wife this week. I haven't, and we can go right down the list, or I haven't disrespected my parents, uh, you know. I haven't even built any idols. <laughs> and how self-deceived we would be, right? I'm glad you agreed. The commands that Jesus is referring to are the ones that he summarized, isn't, aren't they? Not that I'm mocking the 10, they're brilliant. But the summary of the 10 looks like this. You love God supremely and your neighbor is yourself. Both of those hurt. Because every fiber in a human being's being, in rebellion, is about making ourselves our God. We are constantly embattled on that score. For the temptation is to erect shrines in our own honor constantly. Our motivations we can challenge them and find that they're often not what they ought to be. We fail to love God supremely, and we know that we fail to love him supremely because we more often even fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus made it quite clear. How can you say you love God but hate who you have not seen but hate your brother whom you have seen? Now this doesn't mean that there aren't people that are an anathema to us. Scripture makes that quite clear if there are those professing to be Christians and followers of the way, if there are those who are talking the talk, but they're living lives that are totally out of keeping with what they're professing, the Bible tells us not even to eat with those folks. So there is a place for separation. But that's a place that we each must choose. Judas, not Judas Iscariot. Actually, I want to go to 21, 13, 21. Whoever has my commands and keep them is the one who loves me. Anyone who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and will show myself to them and will send my spirit to them. That's added. Jesus said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus said, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. The Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. I have so much. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but... He comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So come, let us leave. Jesus is getting ready for the crucifixion. This is his last minute bit of teaching. This is his last hour to help them understand. This is what we would call the Hail Mary Pass, right? He's hoping that this will sink in. I will not say much more to you because my time is coming. But I love this passage. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. You see the restitution? You see the way in which God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ so that not only can we dwell in Christ, we can dwell in the Father and our home can be in him so that the one who said that he was the I am becomes again the ground of our being, so that we live no longer in the house of fear but the house of love, so that our story is one of redemption, not one of rebellion, so that our purpose is no longer material, exclusively, but spiritual, that the love we live out is not qualified, But it's the love of God for a world from a God who emptied himself fully and gave himself completely. Oh, such mystery. And so, Lord, we thank you for these words and for this revelation. And, congregation, people of God, as we have received, may we now give. I would invite the deacons to collect our offering at this time. I do hope that you'll join us for potluck lunch immediately following in the Christian Life Center to my right. Let us pray. Lord, may we now receive your blessing that we might reveal to this world the Father that sent you as we are in you and you are in the Father and you have sent us. Amen. Amen.